You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War premium episode number 6. This is our fourth and last episode covering the evolution and actions of the cavalry during the First World War, and in this episode we will cover the actions of 1916 through 1918. It was hoped that 1916 would be a big year for the cavalry on the Western Front. The Somme offensive was coming in the summer, and the combined weight of the French and British armies would attempt to rupture the front and send the cavalry through the broken German line. Unfortunately for the cavalry, while they played a role in the planning for the Somme attack, they ended up not playing any role in the attacks on July the 1st. They would be used later during the action on the Somme, but they were still plagued by seemingly insurmountable problems, mostly around command and control of the cavalry units. And of course, they were always beholden to the actions of the infantry, who were having their own special set of problems when it came to achieving their objectives. While the Somme would overall be disappointing for the cavalry, it would be a critical step in the slow process of adjusting the cavalry, and most importantly the commanders involved, to how they should be used on the stagnant battlefields of the Western Front. One of the things that would constantly play in the favor of the cavalry in the last two years of the war was the fact that they had faced much lower rates of attrition than almost any other unit. So as the war entered its third and fourth year, it was one of the few units that had experienced men who had been through several years of intense training at the front. There are even cases in 1918 when officers and men that had been in the cavalry since the beginning of the war would take part. This was unheard of on the Western Front. This meant that when the cavalry were finally called upon in 1917 and 1918, they would be some of the best trained and most experienced men in the entirety of the British Army. The cavalry spent the winter of 1915-1916 doing a lot of training and reorganizing for the future. One of the big pieces of reorganization was the move of all the machine guns away from the regiments and into a centralized machine gun squadron. This change mirrored what the British were also doing in the infantry units, and putting all 12 of the Vickers heavy machine guns into a solid unit meant that their power could be better directed by a higher officer. To make up for the loss of the Vickers, each regiment was given a Hotchkiss gun. This is the less famous gun that filled the same role as the Lewis gun did for the infantry. 
With this change, not only was the overall firepower of the cavalry greatly increased, but also the amount of firepower that could be concentrated in one area got a significant boost. Another large piece of emphasis for the training was working on how the cavalry should communicate with the British pilots in the air. This was a problem that everybody was trying to solve at this point in the war, as communication with the air was the best way to then communicate with the artillery or the commanders behind the line. The cavalry had some advantages over the infantry in this regard, though, such as the ability to take wireless sets with them as they moved forward. They also spent a lot of time working on using signal lamps to communicate with the air. Another problem that the cavalry spent a lot of time on was how they could quickly and easily cross trenches. This was one of those problems that had not been well discussed before the war, but had of course become absolutely critical since 1914. One solution was created by the Canadian Cavalry, specifically the men of the Fort Garry Horse. Their solution was so good that it was decided that the men from Fort Garry would be turned into a special bridging unit that was then split up between other units with the expressed goal of getting the cavalry over trenches. To accomplish this goal, they created a bridge that was split up into four sections, each weighing 50 pounds. These sections could be moved forward on horseback to a trench and then either assembled into a narrow bridge spanning 18 feet, just wide enough for the cavalry to advance over single file, or they could be placed side by side to allow for faster transit. Most importantly, and why the bridge was so good, was because the men could assemble it in about a minute and then disassemble it just as fast. This was a huge improvement over the other available bridging methods and would be critical if the cavalry was ever to move forward in an attack. With some of the problems solved, it was time to discuss the precise role of the cavalry during the Somme Offensive. On the 25th of June, there was a discussion held between Haig, Rawlinson, and some other generals to determine what the plan would be. Rawlinson thought that the cavalry were basically a weapon suited solely for the second phase of the fight, after the infantry had already achieved their objectives. Haig wanted them moved into the fighting earlier, soon after the first waves of infantry went over the top. What neither general could agree on were the objectives of the cavalry. Remember that they were still gunning for a massive breakthrough offensive here that would aim the cavalry at strategic objectives far behind the German lines, but these did not really exist behind the German lines on the Somme, and therefore there was just not much for the cavalry to do other than just attack. When it came to where to commit the cavalry, there were a few considerations to keep in mind. The first was that the area had to be easily reachable and traversable by cavalry, but it also had to be a place where moving the cavalry up to the front would not greatly hinder other forms of traffic, since there would be a lot of it going both to the front and to the rear. There were many ways that this problem could have been solved. One option was to break up the cavalry into smaller units, to reduce the impact on other units, and also to give them more opportunities to be used, but this was not the path that Rawlinson chose. He instead had the cavalry in one large group, with one way forward to the front, and then a single planned area of attack. All of this had to be decided before the attack started, obviously, and it would be very difficult to change when the time came, because while the cavalry was nice and mobile, it would be hard to move them across the battlefield, when all of the roads and paths would be so full of traffic. It would be possible, but it might take a very long time. Of course, all of this planning and thought turned out to be wasted because of the disaster that was the July 1st attack. 
There were some areas of success, but they were not the areas that the cavalry was planned to be used, and so the cavalry cavalrymen spent the day sitting behind the line waiting to be called forward, a call that never came. It would not be until July the 14th, after two weeks of small piecemeal attacks, that the cavalry would be used at a place called High Wood. During the attack, the plan was for the infantry to push forward through the German second line, at which point the cavalry would be called upon to push the attack onto and through High Wood. This action would involve the Indian and Canadian cavalry divisions. Before the attack started, the two divisions were concentrated, which was no small process since they were scattered over 20 miles of countryside, and they used mostly small country paths and fields to move forward instead of dealing with the already heavily congested roads. While they were slightly slowed on the way to the front, it didn't end up mattering, because when the infantry went forward in their attack, they had some difficulties, and could only very slowly push forward instead of the rapid advance that was planned. By the evening, it was finally time for the cavalry to attack, and forward they went. The 7th Dragoon Guards and the 20th Deccan Horse arrived to advance towards High Wood. At 8pm, the Dragoons found a large group of Germans, and they charged them, The Germans quickly broke and fled, with 16 killed and 32 captured. I can only imagine what the Germans thought as they saw horses charging towards them. The Dragoons kept advancing until they came under fire from the German machine guns in the next line of entrenchments. On their right, the Deccan horse found the same problem. They quickly advanced through the German third line, but they found it well defended and in good condition. With this new obstacle completely unassailable, Both groups of cavalry were forced to dig in and wait to be relieved by the infantry. During this action, the cavalry had performed very well, in an environment that many people believed where they would be annihilated. There was an intact German defensive line in front of them, but they were still able to advance and attack more isolated German positions with success, all while being fired at from the flanks as well. During these attacks, they had lost just 8 men killed and 100 wounded. On the Western Front, these numbers were basically rounding errors for casualty reports. With the Battle of the Somme still raging, there was already discussion at headquarters about how cavalry tactics should be adjusted, and some changes were made in late August. Liaison officers from the cavalry were sent to the headquarters of the infantry brigades that they were working with. This would greatly improve cavalry coordination with the infantry in the future, and why this hadn't happened earlier, I can't tell you. There was also the change that in the future, the decision to move the cavalry forward would be given to the divisional commanders in the area, instead of to army and corps commanders like before. This change would end up being largely theoretical for the near future, as army commanders just didn't want to give up that authority, but it would eventually come into play. For the rest of the Battle of the Somme, though, Through no fault of their own, the cavalry would find themselves sidelined, because Rawlinson had decided that he did not want to use them, and no longer included them in his plans. Even with the emphasis by Haig to try and get the cavalry back in the fighting, they would spend the rest of 1916 sitting behind the front, waiting for the call that never came. As had been the case during each winter, during the winter between 1916 and 1917, The cavalry was taken off the line, while conversations happened about their future. Haig wanted the training for that year to be focused on mobility and breakthrough, which was great and all, but in hindsight, training like that would be only mildly useful, if at all. The more important piece of their training would be an increased focus on combined arms attacks with infantry. These were based around scenarios a lot like at High Wood, 
the cavalry would move forward with the infantry and then be used to quickly advance and capture local objectives. Once these were captured, the cavalry would dig in and wait to turn over the positions to the infantry before doing it all over again. This was a big change from what the cavalry was envisioned to do before the war. The thought had always been that they would go into action as an independent unit, not as an arm of the infantry. There were some problems for the cavalry during the winter, completely unrelated to what the generals thought of their usefulness. First, the winter was an extremely cold one, which limited available training time, and there was also a very problematic outbreak of sarcoptic mange during the winter that hit a large number of horses. Large groups of animals had to be quarantined for lengthy periods of time to try and contain the outbreak. Some were even completely shaved of their hair, which would later be a problem when the spring weather was also quite cold. The weather problems would just be made worse by the fact that the action would start quite early for the cavalry during 1917, because in March the Germans would begin their slow retreat to the Hindenburg Line. Hay gave orders for the two cavalry divisions that were sent to pursue the Germans that they were to maintain pressure but also to not take huge risks and to minimize losses. The British were planning their own offensive at Arras and needed to make sure that they did not use too many resources pursuing the retreating Germans. By the time the two divisions, the 5th and the 6th Cavalry Divisions, arrived in the area of the retreat, instead of being used as a pursuit force, they were just used to replace the exhausted divisional cavalry units that had already spent several days following the Germans. Uh, each divi- I should probably mention this. Each division had a very small unit of cavalry used for like scouting and messaging and stuff that in situations like this might be used to scout forward to find where the Germans were. So they'd been running around like crazy for several days. So when the larger cavalry units arrived, mostly they just had to relieve them of their current duties so they could get some rest. With so few men, the cavalry was often just forced to observe and report where the Germans were, and to make sure that they kept retreating. There were some small actions during this phase, but nothing huge, which the cavalry was greatly criticized for after the retreat was over. Most of the critics would cite the lack of aggressive attacks and their inability to capitalize on the German situation as a huge black mark against the 5th and 6th cavalry divisions, and in turn the cavalry as a whole. There were, however, limits on what they could do with so few men, and with their orders from Hague to minimize risks and losses. Here is Cyril Falls, one of the authors of the official British histories of the war. It was perhaps unfortunate that the cavalry divisions were so carefully husbanded for the coming offensive during this phase, for the work done by the 5th Cavalry Division during the few days that it was at the disposal of the 4th Army was brilliant." End quote. The Ross Offensive was planned to begin as soon as the retreat was over, which was the whole reason that so few men were committed to the pursuit. During the Ross Offensive, the British would try something new with their cavalry troops. Instead of waiting behind the lines in mass, they would instead be split up and moved forward close behind the infantry. Instead of a strategic goal of breaking through the German lines, they would be used to provide quick reinforcements and to provide a renewed emphasis to the attack once the first line of German fortifications had been taken. Along with this change, the cavalry's position of readiness was moved far from far behind the front to an area behind between the original British and German lines. These were huge changes that greatly increased the cavalry's ch- chances of actually doing something during these attacks. A few days into the attack, they would use this opportunity when the 3rd Dragoons launched an attack on the village of Mashi. Here's the quote from one of the people involved. 
Quote, during a lull in the snowstorm, an excited shout was raised that our cavalry were coming up. Sure enough, away behind us, moving quickly, an extended order down the slope of Orange Hill was line upon line of mounted men, covering the whole extent of the hillside as far as we could see. It was a thrilling moment for us infantrymen, who had never dreamt that we should see a real cavalry charge, which was evidently what was intended. End quote. The dragoons were able to quickly move forward and through Manchi. They tried to continue their advance beyond the village, but ran into another line of German machine guns and were forced to fall back to the village and dig in. They then waited for the infantry to move forward to relieve them, but this did not happen soon enough. Shortly after the cavalry took up position in Manchi, German artillery started hitting them hard. It was bad enough for the men in their defensive positions, but it was completely disastrous for the unprotected horses. Soon Manchi was a slaughterhouse. Finally, at about noon, all of the remaining horses were moved out of the village, since it was clear that no further advances would be made. This attack at Manchi is probably the best example that I have seen of the strengths and weaknesses of cavalry during the war. They were great at moving forward quickly and securing a specific objective that wasn't beyond a very strong piece of German fortification, but when asked to hold that position for a long time against a determined artillery barrage, they were in serious danger of experiencing massive casualties among their horses and men. The next time for the cavalry to shine would be later in 1917, during the Cambrai Offensive. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. K. 
Cambrai would be the first battle where the British tried to combine the mobility of the cavalry and tanks into one coherent force. The Cavalry Journal would later say that, quote, of all the cavalry operations on the Western Front, none met with more criticism than their action, or some say inaction, at the Battle of Cambrai. Their failure to achieve success gave anti-cavalry critics the opportunity they had been seeking since 1915, and the result was censured by many, who neither knew their subject nor the orders that were issued to the cavalry whom they condemned, end quote. The plan at Cambrai was to have the infantry and tanks break through the German line, at which point the cavalry and tanks would continue to advance forward to take more ground. Overall, there was not a huge amount of antagonism between the tanks and the cavalry. Badsy summarizes the thoughts of the cavalry as, quote, like armored cars, but slower. There was a decent amount of thought given to how they would interact on the battlefield. This included outfitting the tanks with special tools to help them clear away the wire to let the horses through. There was a bit more to think about with cavalry, since the normal tactic of just smashing down the wire with the tank and then letting the infantry walk over was not sufficient for horses. So these tanks had to be equipped with large grapnel hooks attached that they would then pull behind them uh, with a piece of cable. The idea was that the wire would be pulled away with them. This was not entirely successful, but it was a good thought, and it actually worked better than I would have expected it to. The attack at Cambrai was a failure for a huge variety of reasons, though. It was not well supplied, there were not enough men with troops already committed to Ypres and the Italian front, the tanks and cavalry were entirely dependent on the infantry to capture some bridges over the canal, which they had great difficulty in doing, it was probably only partially their fault. I think David Kenyon does a good job of summarizing, quote, The conclusion suggested by these events is that the cavalry-tank cooperation was certainly possible, that it was very, but it was very difficult to achieve ad hoc, except on a very small scale. Mechanized warfare was in its infantry, and not only did the tankmen still have a great deal to learn, but there was also still plenty of room on the battlefield for the flexible battlefield mobility provided by the horse, as was to be demonstrated as the war moved into its final year. So one thing I, I want to point out here is that one of the biggest problems that they had, the, the cavalry and tanks had as they moved forward, is that the tanks were much slower than, than the cavalry. So what would happen is, is the tanks would fall behind the cavalry, and the cavalry would, would run into a, an object, uh, obstruction that they couldn't get past, so they would then have to wait for the tanks. And as the tanks move forward, well, then the Germans would be ready. So this was the whole problem here. And it was something that... The, the tank people, uh, if you, I've been researching a lot about tanks recently, as I prefer for a later episode, and it's pretty clear that the tank, uh, sort of believers or designers and users believe that it was the cavalry's fault, um, for not being able to advance and to hindering the tanks because the tanks had to help the cavalry to move forward, while the cavalry people, as we're talking about right now, end up blaming the tanks for being too slow and holding them back. So both sides blame each other. Whose fault it was, probably everyone's in some ways. Um, and Badsy here takes things even further with, with what he's talking about here with, quote, The British could not know at the time that they were attempting what was to become in the course of the century one of the most notoriously difficult maneuvers in warfare, trying to move an exploitation force, or the cavalry and the tanks, as large as a division or larger, rapidly through a slower-moving force, against enemy opposition, in the middle of a battle, end quote. 
Even during the Second World War, when the tanks were far better and far more maneuverable, and they possessed a vast amount of combat experience, moving tanks through infantry would still be a very difficult prospect. And this was one of the first times that this many tanks were attempting to become an exploitation group along with the cavalry, instead of just being simple infantry support vehicles. It was almost certainly doomed to failure from the beginning. 1918 would be a very different year of warfare on the Western Front. After the German attack in the spring, the battlefield would start moving very quickly into new areas, something that had not happened since 1914. This slightly more open nature of war, combined with the changes in defensive techniques where the defense in depth and not like a super strongly held front line, gave the cavalry many more chances to succeed on the battlefield. Unfortunately, this did not happen until after the cavalry was once again greatly reduced in strength, from five divisions down to three. It is worth reminding at this point in the war, the French and German armies had no cavalry to speak of, so the British still had more than anybody else, but three divisions on the scale of the fighting in 1918 that involved millions of men was just a drop in the bucket. The two divisions that were removed from the Western Front were either dismounted to man the trenches or sent to the Middle East, where it thought they would be more use. The the Indian division was sent to the Middle East. When the Germans launched their attack in the spring, all three cavalry divisions were attached to General Goff's 5th Army. They were given to this army because of how thinly spread the 5th Army was, far thinner than the other British armies, which is partially why the Germans attacked it. It was quite fortunate this is where the cavalry were stationed, because when the time came they were the perfect troops to help the infantry stem the tide of the German advance, and to make sure that the retreat did not turn into a complete rout. Right from the beginning, the cavalry was split up and attached to various infantry formations to act as a covering force for the rest of the army. During this phase, they did their normal scouting activities like reporting on the German positions, speed of advance, etc., and they also took part in some counterattacks to slow them down. The scouting was probably the most important part of their job during the retreat, though. In such confusing times, commanders values good information on enemy movement and strength more than having a few extra soldiers in the line. The quick counterattacks by the cavalry had their place, though, and there were a huge number of small ones, far too many to cover here. One example of these type of actions was performed by the Canadian Cavalry Brigade when they were brought forward to attack a wood near the village of Moreau on March the 30th. This was an important position because it was very close to the critical rail junction of Amiens. When it was decided to launch the attack, the Canadians were almost 10 miles away, but they were able to quickly move into the area and launch their attack just an hour after receiving their orders. The Canadians deployed three squadrons to attack the three corners of the wood that the Germans had already recently taken. Obviously, woods are not a great place for horses, So what the Canadians did was to ride up and around the woods, then dismount and push forward the attack on foot. One of the great advantages this gave them, specifically from the mobility, was to get a group of machine guns into some pretty advantageous positions on the flanks of the Germans, something that probably would have been impossible for any other group of soldiers. This was a huge advantage because when you consider most machine gun actions during the war, the guns themselves are often very stationary. They were large and heavy and difficult to move, so when used by infantry, it was often impossible to move them around quickly when coming under fire. The cavalry did not have this problem, and when they wanted, they could quickly and easily reposition their bases of fire. This gave them an advantage that did not instantly win this little action, 
Instead, it took several hours of fighting before the Germans were pushed out of the wood, but it, it definitely gave them that extra nudge to get it going. 300 Germans were retreating from the woods when they were spotted by a squadron of cavalry that was still mounted, and the squadron charged. In 30 seconds, the 300 yards between the two groups were covered, and the fighting became hand-to-hand. What happened next is a bit of a confusing mess, as all of the first-hand accounts greatly contradict each other in very important ways. But what is known is that there were 24 Canadian and 70 German casualties. By taking the woods back from the Germans, even though it was only temporary, the Germans would be back later. The Canadians were able to slow the German advance by almost an entire day. It's a good example of the cavalry being able to put men in positions to make a difference and to succeed, and to put their tools, their machine guns, into positions that would also help them succeed. After the German spring attacks had been ground to a halt in the summer of 1918, the work began to start driving them back. This period of time was known as the Hundred Days, and in these three months, the British, French, and Americans now started attacking and kept pushing the Germans back all the way until the armistice on November 11th. For the British, the first of these attacks was called the Amiens Offensive, and once again the plan was to use the cavalry to exploit the success of the infantry. Here is David Kenyon again, quote, Rawlinson and his staff appear to have learned the lessons of Arras and Cambrai the year before, the new deeper defensive systems used by both sides by this point in the war not only provided an environment which mu- with much more opportunity and freedom of movement for mounted troops, but also their very depth created a necessity for troops that could advance faster than men simply on foot to tackle the deeper recesses in the defensive system itself. This reflected a change from the vision of cavalry performing a breakthrough function after the local tactical battle was complete, to one of their integrated participation in the tactical battle itself. There would also be a new wrinkle in the attacks this time, and this involved a lighter and slightly faster tank of the Whippet. It was hoped that these tanks would be able to accompany the cavalry on deep attacks through the depth of the German defenses, because while they were only slightly faster, they also had a much longer range. This came at a cost, though. They carried only four machine guns instead of the larger six-pounders of the larger tanks at the time. When the attack started against the exhausted German troops, there was almost instantly some success. The infantry quickly began to push the Germans, and then the cavalry moved into action. Here is the official history of the 15th Hussars as they raced forward to occupy their objective, the old Amiens defensive line. Quote, There is little doubt that many felt that this moment was worth all the years of waiting. As the 15th swept past the positions just captured by the Canadians, these latter leapt to their feet and loudly cheered the regiment as it passed by. The distance to be covered was about 2,000 yards, and almost at once the 15th came under machine gun fire. A few men and horses fell, but the momentum was gained, the forward rush continued, and in a remarkably short time, all squadrons reached their objectives, dismounted, and occupied the old trenches. Even with some successes, there were still problems with meshing the cavalry and tanks into a coherent fighting force, which caused the attacks to be less successful than maybe they could have. Again, this is the whole problem with tanks being slower, cavalry being faster but more vulnerable, and that kind of stuff. Over three days, the mix of cavalry, infantry, and tanks were able to meet their goals, though, and the cavalry suffered only around a thousand casualties. After the war, the Cavalry Journal would say this about the action, 
Quote, These three days' operations showed the great value of mounted troops in exploiting the success of a surprise infantry attack, so long as the ground was such to prevent rapid movement. It was not so much the actual enemy machine guns that held up the cavalrymen in the later stages, as the fact that the broken ground prevented maneuvers to avoid and outflank these machine guns, and it cannot be too strongly emphasized that the infantry and tanks were equally unable to cope with these conditions. End quote. With other advances occurring along the line, the desire at all levels of the army for more cavalry, after years of wanting less, became very quickly apparent. The historian for the Oxfordshire Hussars would say, quote, The moment the war became one of movement, every unit in the army from the corps down to the platoon began screaming for mounted troops to help them, their previous opinion of their usefulness suddenly having changed. End quote. This caused the cavalry to be split up and as much as possible and spread out among the British armies. For the next three months, small units of cavalry would launch their small attacks all along the front when called upon. Here and there, they would be used to outflank German machine guns in prepared positions. Even under fire, they were very often successful. One of the crowning achievements happened on October the 9th, when the 3rd Cavalry Division advanced 8 miles on a front 3 miles wide, capturing some 100 German machine guns and 400 Germans in the process. Soon after, German resistance was broken, and on November 11th, 1918, the war was over. We are now at the end of our discussion of the British cavalry during the First World War on the Western Front. As we have discussed over the last four episodes, the role of the cavalry on the battlefield of France and Belgium in the early 20th century was discussed just as much at the time as it is now. However, it's very important as we look back and evaluate their performance to not fall into the easy trap of simplifying the actions of the cavalry in the war as men who did not know what they were doing or were too stubborn to change from their preconceived ideas in the face of adversity. The Western Front in the First World War was a puzzle that was insolvable for both sides for almost four years. It was only at the very end of resources and after millions of casualties on both sides that it changed. The cavalry was just one small piece of extremely large armies in the field, and they struggled in much the same way as the infantry or the tanks in trying to find some way to achieve some form of victory. As I look back and evaluate their role in the fighting, I do not think that they did that bad. They had a certain set of tactical and strategic doctrines from both before and during the war that they refined and used appropriately when they were able. It is not their fault that these opportunities were few and far between due to circumstances outside of their control. At the end of the war, when maybe they could have made a big difference, they were then so few that it was almost that it almost did not matter except in very local fighting. The purpose of these episodes, though, was not to convince me or you, the listeners, that the cavalry was some amazing fighting force during the war but instead to inform you about their actions, to better equip you to make your own judgments, and to give you some perspective to help you be more critical of historians who quickly dismiss them, and I hope that I've accomplished this goal. To end these four episodes, I think it is best to pull quotes from the two of the historians that have been fundamental to the creation of these premium episodes. First, here is Stephanie Potter from the conclusion of Smile and Carry On. Canadian Cavalry on the Western Front, 1914-1918. Quote, The role of the Canadian Cavalry on the Western Front between 1914 and 1918, 
demonstrates that the mounted arm still had many things to contribute to modern warfare. While the employment of the mounted charge was not always possible or tactically relevant, cavalry played many other significant roles on the modern battlefield, as intended and expected according to pre-war doctrine. The inability to employ a single tactic does not prove the obsolescence of an entire cavalry arm. When employed according to doctrine, cavalry was tactically effective as an exploitation and protective force. End quote. And here is David Kenyon from British Cavalry on the Western Front, 1916 to 1918. Quote, the question of whether more cavalry better led would have been helpful on the Western Front is ultimately, like many counterfactual arguments, somewhat sterile. However, it is reasonable to argue that the cavalry that was present when it was offered the chance to get into battle acquitted itself well and showed that at brigade and regimental level it was an effective fighting arm. End quote. With that, I thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me in our next premium episode, when we begin a series of episodes looking at what it was like for the neutral countries of Europe in a world at war. Goodbye, Picardy.